This is the reality that we're in. Like, words are so important when we look at voiceless. There is no voiceless people. People say, oh, you give voice to the voiceless. No, screw you, right? There's no voiceless. There's only silence. So how in the frameworks that we're giving and the narratives that we're using and the metaphors that are embedded in our cultural thinking, are these systems actually being held up and reinforced without our even knowing? This is such an important work to do, to unpack, to learn we must unlearn. And that's the work. It really, really, really is. There is no voiceless, only the silenced. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all faced help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. It is my distinct pleasure to have friend and activist, advocate, disturber of things, Lauren Cardelli. Uh, I would describe him as a food sovereignty activist, and we're going to dig into what food sovereignty means. We often hear food security, and that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up still. Dedicated to confronting the unjust power in our food systems, he's visited over 2,000 farms in more than 30 countries, has over 10 years of work trying to awaken and change the systems that are crippling the well-being of people who grow our food, our producers, our supply chains. He's the founder and president of A Growing Culture, which is where I discovered him, an Instagram account uh, that you absolutely must follow. So let me just repeat it so you can pull out your phone while we're getting started here. A Growing Culture, which is an activist collective. And a 501c3, a nonprofit showcasing hard truths and fostering global solidarity for farmer justice, farmer rights, peasant voices, so that folks growing food can reclaim power into the food sovereignty movement. And this is scratching the surface. I got to meet Lauren in person in New York City about nine months ago, and we pulled up to a restaurant bar, had a snack, and I walked away from that conversation with a lot more hope that people were pushing in directions that I was unaware of. And even though I've been doing this my whole life, with some new awarenesses and a new newfound curiosity. So Lauren, welcome. It's an honor to have you here, brother. Appreciate it, Mark. It's an honor, honor to be here with you. And where are we getting you from right now? I feel like it's Italy. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm on like a tail end of a multiple week work trip through multiple countries. Um, I'm in Italy. First time, first time Italy experience. It's not usually on the, on the wow. tour trajectory of the growing culture, but it's it's pretty interesting. I'm in Umbria. Umbria is extremely special. I do a lot of work over there. I'm there multiple times a year and adore it. Specifically, you're on the Mediterranean diet and some of the UNESCO heritage stuff over there. And I am so excited. Now, I just put a pin in you and I getting a side call just strictly on Italy and you eating there and spending time there. But I want to kick us off today with a quote of yours, which is... I think it's a really good way for us to start the conversation. If I see one more picture of the future food movement void of the 1.5 million landless peasants, traditional indigenous and small family farmers, that is not a food system I want to be part of. Unpack that for us. It feels like the center of a growing culture. So maybe use that as a lens to tell us how growing culture is founded and why you are at the center of this thing. Well, I don't even know where, where's that quote from? Mm. We do our research over here, my guy. I know. I'm like, damn, that's the, okay. All right. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important to to conceptualize the world we live in today. Um, and for a lot of folks, there are so many false narratives that are held up around our food system, um, which as we, we go on this journey today, I think we should unpack how is at the heart of all the issues we really care about, right? Um, but... 
the food system is really framed in a way um, as uh, a dominant industrial food system that supports and, and produces the food that we that we eat and depend on in the world. The reality is that there's diverse food systems all over the world that outproduce industrial agriculture. Um, these food systems are indigenous and peasant-led, driven by landless migrant workers um, and all sorts of communities that don't get the mic. Um, and they, you know, occupy, you know, less than 20% of the total acreage in agricultural production, but yet produce 70 to 80% of the world's food consumed. Consumed. Mm. Because food consumed is very different, right, than food produced. Um, yes. The industrial agricultural system produces calories that don't go to human consumption. They go to ethanol. They go to food waste. I know you're all about that, and you, you've seen a lot of that um, in your work, Mark. But um, the real unsung heroes of our food um, web that we exist in is the smallholder, peasant, indigenous communities. Um, and against all these odds, subsidy is not in their favor. Development and research agenda is not in their favor. Government policy not in their favor. They're still outproducing industrial agriculture to this day. And if we're going to push for change, we need to center that. I love that. And so understanding that you had ex experienced yourself and like the idea of you getting involved in this work came from, from your words, hunting and growing food in the bush of Belize, you witnessed a child dying from pesticide consumption. So exactly the people that we're talking about now, that is part of your lived experience. What is that? What happens there? How do you find yourself there? And how does this, this instance happen in your life? Ooh. We we're really going in the archives here. Yeah, I was 18 years old, uh, grown up in a Puerto Rican and Jewish family in New York, um, and was out to to really explore something different, um, to find a different way of living. Uh, I was interested in agriculture, but it was really my interest in agriculture came from this 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 environmental. Um, you know, focus and lens, right? Um, and so as soon as I could, like, hit the road legally on my own, like, I did that. You know, at 18, I took off, got a one-way ticket, you know, um, met someone in a bar who convinced me to move out into the bush. I lived with two local, you know, native Belizean men in, in the bush where we, you know, drank from the same stream. We bathed and washed our clothes in, right? Like, um, hunted our own meat, grew our own vegetables. You know, this was before, like, I'm not an old man, but this was like before, like Facebook, I think, and cellular phones and those, I mean, like cellular phones were maybe like, I just didn't have them. Wasn't a thing. Right. And so uh, our neighbor, right. So, well, let's be honest. I was crap at hunting and um, growing up in a Puerto Rican family, like I was, I needed some meat, man. Like I was like enough of, Beans, 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 and beans, right? Like I needed something. So I um, I went to the, to the neighbor, which was, you know, about a two-hour walk. And this is the neighbor. This is where we were. Um, and that neighbor was part of a village that was connected to the logging road. Um, and um, in that village, you know, uh, is where I was trying to barter some vegetables and produce that we grew for chickens, bring back some chickens, slaughter them and cook them for dinner. And I heard this screaming and I ran out there and saw this, this man holding a young boy limp and pale. And that young boy had died from drinking the pesticides on his father's farm. And it's at that moment I realized that, you know, the gateway to environmental erosion is social and cultural erosion, right? Like Oof. that there's so much knowledge and wisdom that exists out in this world, right? Like, and that, um, that how could we be so close, but yet so far away? Like we were growing using the most sustainable organic or whatever they call regenerative practices to this day, um, had surplus. This community was connected to Logan Road, which meant they were connected to the market, which meant they were connected to middlemen and brokers and the pushers of the industrial agricultural system, which meant they weren't growing for themselves and their community, which we can unpack in a bit, right? They were growing for the market, right? And this is the industrialization of our food system. It's shifting self-sufficiency models to export where they're supposed to be compensated enough to produce their own food, right? Like, and let's unpack that when we talk about hunger in a bit. But 
That's the reality of the situation there. They were growing for market using chemicals, using, you know, hybrid or GM seeds. Um, and um, that same chemicals they used to grow their food took the life of a young child. And it was at that moment where I really started to realize, like, what are we doing? What are we doing as a society here? And how, how important it is to celebrate and recognize such innate and brilliant knowledge passed down by, by unnamed scientists, a.k.a. farmers, over millennia that have developed the most amazing and, you know, ingenious models of agriculture, innovative models of agriculture, and how the same system, whether it's in, you know, Iowa, you know, Arkansas, Kenya, or Belize, oppresses producers, um, holds them under the thumb of big ag. Yeah, man. Well, I love the, the passion that I knew that you were going to bring to the show is obviously already coming out. You know, we usually save that to segment three and four. So let's, let's just pop it straight off, my guy. I'm super excited to dig into these things because what we're going to do in this episode is we know that these things are ultra complex and ultra simple. And you've just given us the analogy of both of those. We've always had the knowledge. The farmers have the knowledge. The generational awareness is there. And yet, too be part of the system, we are poisoning literally the land, the people that they're being producers, you witnessed it firsthand, but also ourselves and ingesting. And so let me finish this segment with a quick quote, which is, we as a community, we as a food movement, have to recognize that this food movement is about farmer autonomy and about farmer rights. We have to support them to shape a food system. You're on better. I'm with my guest, Lauren Cardelli. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. You're here with my guest, Lauren Cardelli, a growing culture. And we're going to talk about all kinds of things, food system today, but we started with, and why I think this is so important, Lauren, is we often talk about the what, what we do in the world. People are aware of what I do in the world, what you do in the world. In this conversation, they're going to become more aware of it. But ultimately, what I want for this show is to give people the tools and the awareness that that passion that burns from inside them, literally, there's critical moments that influence the way and the path that we take. And you shared one of yours with us right now and with me. And that's critically important because it is definitely something that we reference back to and say, oh, right, this is where it started for me. And then since then, I've learned a thousand other things that are exponentially more evil and poisonous than this which continue to fuel that fire. So the quote that we finished with was, we as a community, we as a food movement have to recognize that this movement is about farmer autonomy and about farmer rights. We have to support them to shape a food system. Now we're normally in the space of vilification of large production, and that could be the four organizations that control X or the six organizations that control Y, like the, the seed bank and the, the way that farmers are actually controlled. And we talk about that a little bit, but the general public or population is moved more into what are their choices in the grocery store? What does that look like? And so I want to take this today with you into a place of what does citizen A do to support the work that you continue to uncover within these systems? What do we do with our dollar, with our time, with the way that we consume? How do we do the work? I mean, this is a, a heavy, heavy question, right? Because I think in our society, we want these easy fixes. We want to be told what to do. It's like, just drive this Tesla car and you're Gucci, right? Like, you're now like carbon negative. Just do this. <laughs> buy this funny looking light bulb. Eat this diet. Um, and I don't think it works that way, you know? I think the biggest failure of, of the Western, you know, or U.S.-centric, you know, food movement, quote unquote, is that it, it takes like the Scientology approach, right? Like it's like the more you pay, the more holy you are. Like if you can afford these like, you know, Oof. items at Whole Foods and all this kind of thing, it's like virtue signaling and elitism, right? And I, and I think, you know, one of my heroes, uh, rest in peace, you know, um, Chico Mendez says, you know, uh, environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening. Oof. One more time, one more time. Run it, run it back, run it back. One more time. Chico Mendez says what? 
environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening, right? Um, and bars. I think it's really important to understand the class dynamic within our agricultural system, right? Um, and I think so often we get these local movements of, you know, elitism where people can afford these certain products. They, you know, they feed each other. They, I mean, and it's like, these are communities that have benefited from the very systems, you know, of injustice that are now localizing their economies and keeping that resources in there. Right. What does that mean to the 90% of Filipino farmers that don't, don't own the land they till? What does it mean to the 150,000 Maasai being pushed off their land because of UNESCO World Heritage Site declaration happening in in Tanzania right now. What does that mean to the largest social movement mm. in the Americas, which is MST, Movimiento Santera, like, right? Like the landless workers movement, which are landless people in Brazil, right? Like, um, what does this look like? And I think we have to start to unpack that, right? Um, and I haven't seen drastic models of that in in the United States. But, you know, if you can afford these things, of course, make these decisions, right? But I think what we have to push back against is things like regenerative, organic sustainability that divide our perceptions of nature into a purely environmental one, right? Like humans are part of the ecosystem, indigenous, peasant, migrant, Everyone is part of the natural world, right? And so when you look at these purely environmental outcomes, right, um, building soil carbon, right, planting trees, and they and you're separating, divorcing them from farmer cooperatives, farmer wages, right? Like, like go to the store. See how many products you can see that say sustainable or regenerative. How many products can you see that say farmer-owned, you know, like farmer cooperative supportive right like when do where do you see that right and if you think fair trade goes far enough i'm sorry do your research because like that is not even a drop in the bucket right um we need to reimagine the ways that we engage with producers right all over the world because right now in a population that produces enough food for 11 to 12 billion people we produce enough calories today for 11 to 12 billion in a Right? How many people are in the world? Seven billion. Still, 1.2 billion go to bed hungry. Like, how does that math work mm-hmm. without injustice in the equation? Right? Tell me. Like, how does that work? And you want to hear what's worse? Is about 70% of them are involved in agriculture. 70% of the very ones right. that are hungry and starving in this world, right? Like, Mark, you work in restaurants. Let's think about this. Seven out of 10 of the most underpaid jobs in the United States are in what sector? Food, right? Like, like, this exactly is disgusting, right. y'all. This is what we're doing, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and, and the food system, you can look at it as, as, as like an hourglass. Think about it. You got producers on top, roughly 2.5 billion still holding strong, producing the world's food. And then you got consumers on the bottom. And in the middle, where that narrows, you got the handful of corporations that control everything. Right. And I'm talking about three corporations that control 70 percent of seed, four corporations that control whatever percent of like, you know, 70, 80 percent of grain trade. I mean, these is real consolidation here. Y'all, this is no joke. Mm -hmm. These they got their hands around our necks and they're pitting us against each other. So if I want a product right that treats the environment and farmers well, I can't afford it. Right. If I want an affordable product, I end up buying a product that undervalues the labor of my brothers and sisters all around the world, right? This is the problem and this is the scenario and we have to pitch back at that, right? And so that's going beyond just buying local, direct market, going to your bougie restaurants where you can get organic avocado toast. We have to start asking serious questions and pushing for farmer centrality and farmer rights, not just an organic logo. Mm. Well, that in effect is the answer. So when I say, what can we do? I assume that people can work at their highest capacity and the highest capacity is to be informed and to advocate. Right. And so I think ultimately that line is like, what can we do at home, Bob, which is saved for the, you know, the morning news of like, well, make sure to recycle your organics. And that's 
What I was asking you was exactly what you responded with. Understand the system, find out your part in dismantling it. How do you actually advocate for decentralization? Right? Like if we're in a place right now where that chokehold is real and trust, I've worked with those companies and around them and seen the internals of it. Nothing is changing. If anything, that grip is getting stronger. And we got to witness what happens to us as a consumer population and the people who I service and the people who you advocate for during a global crisis in just shipping. Yeah. Just simple things like that. Like what happens? We have no reliance or self-reliance in a place. I live in the Great Bear Rainforest. I'm on the unceded territories of Squamish, Nahomish, Musqueam, Tooth, and other nations. We should be able to grow 100% of our food right outside our doorstep. And we grow like three. <laughs> so in crisis, we're all completely and utterly fucked. And in that moment, we have to have this realization that the, the people who hold the knowledge are the people who you are advocating for. The people who are holding the way to our future amongst the crisis that is inevitably coming are the people who you advocate for. So I wanted to share a couple of things going into the next segment. But really quickly, another quote from you, which is, the creation of a growing culture was a pushback against injustices in agriculture. That's just like, hold that as the frame. We aim to create a space for the sharing of agricultural knowledge and innovation in a food system that takes this away. So you just gave us the long type form format of that, like that takes this away. Well, we know the how. The hourglass model is very visual and beautiful for us to just imagine and then to hold. And then I think I want to talk about projects that you guys are doing. You folks are doing one is Seed is Power, another is Hunger for Justice. And I'll start with Hunger for Justice, which is a storytelling series designed to center justice in food system dialogues. This series is an opportunity to shift our focus away from symptoms like hunger and towards injustice at the root of our failing food system. You're on Better with my guest, Lauren Cardelli. Keep it locked. We'll be right back. Folks, welcome back to Better. We're here with my guest, Lauren Cardelli. Hard to believe we already got through two segments. They go so quickly and because I want to make sure that we get all this stuff in too. And so let me jump straight into it. We're talking about the project from a growing culture called Hunger for Justice, a storytelling series designed to center justice and food system dialogues, an opportunity to shift our focus away from symptoms like hunger and towards injustices at the root of our failing food system. Analogously, I feel like I could pull that out and talk about everything that you and I care about. They've got us looking over here when we should be looking over here. And that's why it was so important to bring you on today. But you guys provide an emergent and interactive global platform for movements on the front lines of the struggle for food sovereignty to connect with broader audiences and with each other. Until every last million of us hungers no more, we must hunger for justice. I like that that's poetic at the end. I appreciate those parts of how you guys share. I think storytelling is critically important, sharing space even more so. So tell me about the inception of Hunger for Justice, how you feel like it's going, how all of that is in your world. Yeah, Hunger for Justice was conceived um, as, as, a, as a larger framework for where that um, initial webinar series was, you know, we called it, a, we didn't like the webinar, so we called it a broadcast, was, was piloted. Yes. But, you know, the the ethos and energy of hunger for justice, right? Um, we all hunger for something. And until every one of us hungers no more, we must hunger towards justice, right? Like um, the, the beauty of that is, is a calling to the food movement, to environmentalists, to often the liberal kind of side of things, which can see the elephant in the savannah easier than the elephant in the room, right? Um, mm. And trying to get folks to understand um, that our relationship with the environment is a reflection of our relationship amongst ourselves, right? Yes. That there will be no sustainability as long as we have hegemonic powers oppressing us, as long as we have patriarchy, as long as we have that. Like injustice breeds extraction. There goes the cycle. Um, and so, so far too often the debate has always been on these kind of things that I believe kind of gaslight us to be quite honest. And like, we can unpack this a bit, right? Like 
So you look at like the recycling commercials back in the day, right? Like, and the one with like the crying Native American, right? Like, um, who was actually an Italian actor. Um, but like, um, that was paid by the plastic company because they want you to think that whether this is a pollutant or not is up to us, not the corporations, right? Like markets up to you right. and I, right? And then carbon footprint, right? Was created by Oglesby and BP, right? Like, because like whether we're emitting, you know, carbon out into the atmosphere and causing all this stuff is our problem, right? So now you got a bunch of kids, you know, who uh, are going to liberal arts colleges crying every time they have to get on a plane and feeling guilty about themselves, right? Like when the reality is like one percent mm-hmm. of the world contributes a majority of the carbon footprint, right? Like this is a class thing, mm-hmm. right? Like and this needs to be addressed, right? But they don't want that conversation. And now look at like the big conversation in food and ag, right? It's 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 on food waste, right? Like because mm-hmm. the problem with our food system and whether it's wasteful is when it hits my plate and after, not the whole system getting there, which is absolutely bullshit. I'm sorry. And it's like and this is like <laughs> what are you trying to do? Like you're telling me that like I am the problem when you have corporate consolidation up a kazoo polluting every riverway that you can imagine. You have extractive systems. You have child trafficking in the cacao industry, right? Like you have a system where where West Africa produces 80 percent of the world's cacao but gets less than 2 percent of the $100 billion revenue, right? You think mm-hmm. changing that farm to regenerative organic is going to change the damn thing, right? Like no. <laughs> like – like, like, what is going on here? We have to look at this in a, in a way bigger way. Like, we have to understand the systems at play, and we have to learn that the farmer under contract with Tyson in Arkansas that can't even bring his friend into the farm that is told what to do in a dehumanizing model is just as oppressed as the farmer in Kenya who hasn't been paid for their coffee plants for the last two years, right? Like, these systems are screwing us all, right? Um, and, and, and so... Hunger for justice is an attempt to correct that, right? To get folks to not just look at the elephant in the savannah and look at the elephant in the room, which is our complicity in these systems of injustice and how we need to build, mobilize, and unite for dismantling of these systems and radically imagining something new, something better. Absolutely. All right. So I want to just come into this energy right now by saying, we try to have the conversations based on hot topics. So when you and I talk, you're like, you work in food waste, and yet we know that food waste is also a gigantic red herring. Right? So they're, they're saying, hey, look over here. At home, you should have a composter. Also, you should be doing this and this and this when we know that the production... And so what I do with conversation is I started in the like, look what we got from three grocery stores and we're able to feed 280 more people a day who are quite literally starving in an urban center that's one of the richest cities in the world. I'm saying all of this because I want you to ask the questions of me, which I'll happily answer, and others of, wait a second, why are people starving? That you? Why do you need to help feed those folks? Why are there more people still hungry if all of this food is here? Wait a second. I don't understand how you're just getting this way. Like what is, if you start to ask the questions that then lead you down a path, but we start in a place where it's like, okay, I understand this. I understand this because I am that. So what we try to take is the narratives that are being force fed to us and say, yes. And also look this way. And so thank you for sharing that entire giant lens is like, Hey, I need you to be able to approach it. I need you to be able to be in the conversation because if it's just Lauren and Mark talking about this stuff, it's definitely not helpful. I need you in the grocery aisles. We need you in the grocery aisles saying, damn, what, I wonder what happens when that gets one brown spot. And how many times could that have happened in the chain from it coming 3,700 miles away? And wait a second, I wonder what's happening in that destination. So I think that it's radically important for folks to be able to access this information. And I got to say that outside, I had our friend Rhett Butler from Onga Bay on a few weeks ago. My, my brother, my dude, and like the way that he describes things and the way that you describe things and the way that my friend Chef Charles Michel, these are all parts of the system that are individually working in ways to provide information that is not being provided on a large scale. So I wanted to take a pause at this point and say, a growing culture 
is essentially a platform like Amonga Bay, but for agriculture and agricultural justice and sovereignty. And so if, if you care about any of the stuff we're talking about, you must follow this thing and also be a participant in it. And so I, I want to just drop one more quote here. We've got two minutes left in this segment. We're going to keep it rolling. For those of you listening on the podcast, we got lots of time. And this is another one from Lauren, which is, it's not about us changing the food system. Step back. It's about them and we need to support them. We're talking about the farmer in this moment, right? So we, we the food system itself, we know who's holding it. We know who's controlling it. But the quote continues to say, have you ever asked a farmer how you can help them in their capacity to change the food system? In the system right now, we want to assume we have the solutions. We want to empower the consumers to change the food system more than the farmers and producers. But you can't ignore the community that you supposedly speak for. I love that last line because I think it's in our initial conversation in person, that was the centering design point of that conversation. You cannot ignore the community that you supposedly speak for. And I spoke to you as an individual about that. You as Lauren. And so when we come back, I want to dig further into because leadership and how we get into a place of leadership and peer leadership, like why that's so critically important is because we need tens of thousands of more a growing cultures. We need more of this and we need it everywhere, but I don't think people know how. And I think they also have a lot of guilt and nerves and anxiety around the who. And so the, the who is really important. You're on better with my guest, Lauren Cardelli. Keep it locked. We'll be right back. Back to better. Last segment on the radio here. If you're tuned into the podcast, we got lots more time. We're with my guest, Lauren Cardelli from A Growing Culture today. I finished with a quote about, you cannot ignore the community that you supposedly speak for. Lauren, we heard the, one of the inception portions of why you get so deeply ingrained in this, but what is this journey like then and now for you? And why? Like why? Why you what is it like to hold that space? It's lonely, man. It's hard. It's scary. It's vulnerable. It's everything. It's, I don't know. I mean, it can be dark, right? Like it's, it's a lot. And that's a heavy, you know, that's to me, that's heavier than the conversations we had earlier, right? Like to me, looking at the centrality of placing of yourself, um, dismantling ego, um, finding new ways to, to be a leader, redefining leadership in today's world is hard. Um, it's really hard and it's scary. And every step of the way you doubt yourself and you feel like you just want a week, a day of like not running on a treadmill where you can just walk and not feel like you have to scale a mountain of a learning curve just to, to get where everybody's asking of you, you know? Um, it's hard, man. And, and I think we have to to realize and reframe how we work. And and I'm not going to sit here and, and, and act like like a growing culture has cracked this. This is a process and we're working on it. Um, and, you know, I'm scared of the shadow of power. Right. Of like my own power. Right. Like um, and and it terrifies me. And that has created problems in this organization. It is created, you know, um, and, and, and that's like, it's like, how much do I step into being a leader? How much do I step back into letting others lead? Like we're finding this as we, we are building a collective leadership model and, and trying to imagine something fundamentally different. I mean, and this is hard work and, and it's not easy. And I'll tell you, everybody at the social media account, which I actually don't have, right? Because um, I'm allergic to that. And I think social media is the worst. <laughs> I'm putting a pin in that. Like, no, seriously, like, I mean, people don't expect that of me, but it's like, yeah, never even had a Facebook account. Like, why? Why would you? But, um, like, everyone, like, um, is there to critique you and to judge you. But it's like, like, to be in that situation, it's hard. Like, who the hell wants to be a president in this world? Who the hell wants to be, like, a leader? Like, um, this, is, this is not easy work. And I think what's really important is, is realizing that, 
the strength that we can get is strength of diversity, diversity of opinion, diversity of belief, diversity of views. And I think folks on left and right struggle with that idea, right? Um, let's be honest. Like this is not like a, a political, you know, issue on one fault line or the other. This is universal in our world today, right? Of heavy polarization, of of the inability for critical thinking and in a way of of seeing the humanity in others, right? Like like liberation comes mm. from acknowledging another's humanity, right? And I tell this people all the time. The three most powerful words in the language, in any language, is I see you. All we want mm. is to be seen in this world that denies us that opportunity to be seen. That hungry person on that street, that, that working mother of five, that hedge fund person that's working and, 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 and like is caught up in a system they don't even know how how their condition is conditioned, right? Like everybody here is just trying to compensate in a world that dehumanizes us all. And that's why this isn't about charity. This is about moving towards collective liberation, right? And this is about reimagining systems because like if I went to a Baptist church in the South right now and I stood there, Mark, and I said, I don't believe in God, they would say my brother and give me a hug and they'd understand me. 100%. But if I said, I don't believe in capitalism, they'd think I'm crazy. <laughs> right like up. like and and like so it's not about the capitalism or marxism debate this is a false debate it's about where are we going tomorrow what are we learning like what is the lessons like like how do we imagine a, a world where where which doesn't prey on the working class because i don't care if we left left or right guess what gets sped up the factory line <laughs> Like, and that's the truth. Right. Um, and we have to reconcile with that. Right. Um, and and so I really think in the ways that we organize, it's about making sure that you're not the hero of the story. Mm. It's about leaning into the uncomfortability. It's about making sure that the people that need to be in that room are in that room. Mm. And it's about recognizing that everyone is doing the best they can and we're all just trying and we're all making mistakes along the way. And every single one of those things that you share is at odds with each other in the Venn diagram, right? And so I think what you said so critically importantly there is like a lot of things can be true at the same time, right? They can absolutely be true at the same time. One is of the hedge fund edition, right? That that person, regardless of gender, working in that space is like, this is everything I've ever been told I'm supposed to get there. They're, they're deadly lonely. They're deeply addicted, whatever that may be. Like, we're all just trying to figure this out and truly be seen. And I, I love that. I love that analogy. And I love the way that that holds so fucking true. And so I think the other part I want to poke at with our last couple of minutes here on the radio is in our circles of advocacy and as we continue to move in this world those spaces and this is another quote from you it's so easy for you to see how deeply elitist and racist the environments are and that they are exclusionary and it truly is that space and so when you consistently try to bring other voices in there it's so challenging and so what i love about what a growing culture does is that you are aware that the model's not perfect. You're aware that you also have to work within the constraints of the structures that are existing. And you, you got to do the hardest parts of that. And so in the final two minutes here, share what that evokes for you. Well, I mean, what, what it evokes to me is this, is that I hear so much from, from, from especially the younger generation, that this, 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 this pressure of purity. Let me, let me tell you what activism is. It's holding contradiction and tension. That is the definition of activism. It's recognizing the world we're in today and the world we want tomorrow and how to get there, right? Like, come on, give me a break. Like this concept of purity is bullshit and we have to drop it. You know, like fight, fight as hard as you can. Shed that guilt and energize yourself in solidarity with people that you don't know, that don't look like you. They don't talk like you. They don't think like you. 
right? And, and, I, and I use this example a lot when we're bringing in folks to our team. It's like the lesson of the zebra in the savannah, right? Like the zebra is black and white and, it's, and, 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 and that, that black and white creates camouflage. But the savannah during the wet season is what? Lush and green. During the dry season, it's dry and, and yellow. So how is something black and white fucking camouflage in that scenario situation, right? Like, how is that? And it's because there's other eyes looking at that savannah. And to the lion, who's colorblind, it is. And so, like, what happens is we have to be reminded that it's not only our way looking at the problem. Right. Like like it's not only our lens, there's other ways of seeing, of knowing, of relating. And how do we find ways to find that humanity in everyone? That's where we're going. And that's how we have to move. And that beautiful analogy to finish on. Folks, if I can pull one more piece of data to leave you with, this comes directly off of Growing Cultures, who we are story, which is we live in a world where power is consolidated into the hands of a few. Four companies control 60% of the proprietary seed market. Think about what that means for growing. And also our vulnerability as a planet. Four companies control 75 to 90% of the grain trade. What? Six companies control 75% of the agrochemical market. These are things to pull apart. But what I want to pull apart right now and just honor and thank is the passion, which is the way you move in the world, Lauren, and what you shared with us today. I knew this was going to be important. I knew that it was going to be powerful and you surprised even me. So I appreciate you showing up here today. And folks, if you are not already following a growing culture, you are now. And Lauren will definitely be back with us. Uh, if you're on the radio, take great care. And we'll see you next week. If you're on the podcast, don't All right, folks, strap up. We're here. We're here. We're still here. And, you know, my energy internally is saying that's the close, but it's not. But that energy that you just shared and the lens that you just shared about lenses, right? About the fact that we are in this movement. I was at a, on a panel in Queens four years ago about forgiveness. Um, the only white dude on the stage in a conversation. And the conversation in the Q&A at the end of this panel was, um, what is the biggest problem facing activists right now? And I said, us. And everybody looked confused. And I said, we are our biggest problem. And they're like, okay, please share more. I was like, we are the most exclusionary group and, and delightfully unaware of our exclusionary tactics. If you don't know our language, our vernacular, the problems, etc., you can be quickly dismissed. You can be vilified for being half in the work. All of the things. There is no room for growth. There is no room for learning. And I equate it to like the hip-hop movement. You're a toy until you're great, right? So an early graph writer, early breakdancer, early DJ, early rapper. Not everybody is good right away. And we have to make space in these movements for people to learn and ask questions that sound like they haven't done enough. And that created another three-hour conversation at the end of that panel. We, we sat down and people were mad with me, like really angry. And you have to be able to hold that space in those conversations. So thank you for shaping all of that at the end. But what's your experience moving in the world with holding the fire, bringing things to light, and then under that constant critique as Lorne, not as a growing culture? Yeah, man, it's hard. It's like, I mean, like none of this is like easy. And if it's easy, then go find something else to do. Right. Like we talk about, like, you want to get in that flow state, you need that challenge. Right. Um, and um, I appreciate what you said, because one of the things we all we, we say to growing cultures, our food system isn't broken. We are. Right. Um, or another thing we say is that, like when people say, what is the, the tool or innovation needed to fix the food system? And I, I always say it's a mirror. Um, mm. it's an opportunity to look at ourselves. Um, agriculture birthed civilization and society, mass organization. You know, if it wasn't for agriculture, we would have never known what it was like to live with the stranger, to live with somebody not in our tribe, not in our kinship. Right. And how to navigate that. 
So we've created rituals, we've created clubs, we've created all sorts of things to bond and build us together because of agriculture. Some of these things have done wonders uniting us, and some of them have been wedges dividing us. You know, and so I, I, I do think that so much we have to reflect on is, you know, how we live in society today and what shapes and governs us. And I, and I think, Mark, like, we're in this really interesting time, mass digital communications and social media, right, which I've already shat on earlier, right? Like, we, we live in, you know, authoritarianism is on the rise, and let's be honest, left and right, again, <laughs> again, driving that ship. Um, let's talk about COVID and the lack of trust in institutions, right? Um, I don't care if you're in Philippines where, oh, shit, Bong Bong just won the election. I don't, just insane. I don't care if you're in Brazil. I don't care if you're in the United States or Canada. You turn on the news, you're going to hear misinformation. You're going to hear fake news. You're going to hear things like science is real. You're going to hear things like like the, the purity and sanctity of of an ultimate truth or fact that that even exists. And and, and, and and it's baffling to me, brother, because I feel like we have to peel back these layers and look at the forest, not the trees for a second and say, wait, where is fact governing my life? Where is fact dictating how I live, like, right, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, right? Our ethical and moral codes are not based on fact, my friend, right? Faith mm. and the millions of faith that exist in this world are not based on fact, right? Like, like white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, whatever we want to say, these are not based on fact. Our nationalities are not a fact, you know, like what separates Irish from the Scottish, right? <laughs> like, you know, like Costa Ricans from Nicaraguans. These are not based on facts. These are these are lines drawn. Like these are stories that we've been told that you are different now. Like so much of our world is not based on fact. And so why are we talking about things in this way? Like, and I'm not like an, a post-truthist. Like I'm not shitting on, on, on facts, but I'm saying like maybe the way to have a conversation is a little bit different than the way we've been doing it. Maybe the way to talk about the world around us isn't in the way that we've been talking about it by, by shaming someone with facts and driving them down their throats because like the fact is industrial agriculture doesn't feed the world. We said this, smallholder and peasant indigenous farmers outproduce it. The fact is climate change is coming. The fact is capitalism consolidates wealth in the few. Right. Like, but yet social thinking, policy development is all aligned in the opposite. It's promoting the industrialization of our food system. It's ignoring climate change and it's further consolidating power. Right. Like, but like, so like, why are we trying to, to jam facts down people's throats to get this point across? And maybe we need to look at our own reflection, our own movement and the reality of where people are coming from and what is moving and governing them. Like, how do we bring narrative and story and emotion into something? Like, how do we get somebody in, in, in rural Canada to care about someone in rural Kenya? How do we bridge these places so that they can understand that the struggles of, 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 of workers on in Amazon and the struggles of, of workers on a Nestle field are one in the same, right? Like how do we start to do this and that, in that, in that, and, and because right now we're using frameworks, right? Like we're using these digital algorithms, right? But we're also using a language that doesn't allow us to even define certain key emotions. Like the Bantu word Ubuntu, I am because we are. It's that shared humanity that doesn't exist in in Spanish, French, or English, right? Like, like we don't have words for that. So, so, so is my reality void of that even sentiment and understanding that unites us, right? Like, and so, how am I working against this? Like, how are these words and myths and narratives used against us? In the instance, like the root of the word colonization, my friend, is culeri, right? 
means to cultivate, right? Like, like, like let's be honest, right? The root of the word farmer, French Latin firme, which means to rent or to lease, right? The word, root of the word peasant is to live with and off the land. Peasantry is self-sufficiency, which is the ultimate model of nonviolent resistance against the hegemonic state. But yet we've used that term as a derogatory one and, and celebrated farmers where there's even a dating app in the United States, farmers only, right? Like when it's like a renter or a leaser, it's, 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 it's a modulation within a feudal system, which we've propped up and celebrated. This is the reality that we're in. Like words are so important when we look at what it means to be a slave versus enslaved. Right? Who, where are we putting the onus on? Right? When we look at voiceless, there is no voiceless people. People say, oh, you give voice to the voiceless. No, screw you. Right? There's no voiceless, there's only silenced. So, how in the frameworks that we're giving and the narratives that we're using and the metaphors that are embedded in our cultural thinking are these systems actually being held up and reinforced without our even knowing? This is such an important work to do, to unpack, to learn, we must unlearn. And that's the work. It really, really, really is. There is no voiceless, only the silenced. And one of the centering principles of this and all of the work that I and we do is there is no us and them, there's only us, which is a direct translation for me of Ubuntu. It's, it's really that same space of if we can't look at people as us versus other, and, you know, in the defining things that we do when working with people who are street entrenched or deeply mentally ill or been oppressed by the system or have been systematized or have been marginalized for multiple reasons, that's not other. There's no other in that, but yet we have been taught to pray to the church of individualism. I am individually great because of X. I am individually, you know, I'm seeking good for self. And that still permeates in, in the bastardization of the wellness culture, right? All of the things that we are being propped up and you talked about earlier, it's just, it's that. It's like the I. And my, as you know, having hands in dirt or having hands on pots and pans with people and being amongst that, there is no greater peace and calm in the production and the, the creation and the sharing of things that take care of each other. So I loved your... Uh, recentering and reframing of the word peasant in the peasantry. I loved the definition of farmer, which has felt like right next to renter for me. And when we talk about the hegemony, what we're talking about is the dominance um, of a social group or country over others. Like just the, it's, it's, it's a dominating thing. The dominance of one group over another um, and often supported by what you were talking about, which is legitimating norms and ideas that are pervasive. And what we're sitting in. So when we talk about those things, it's like it's easy for our mind and our body to land those things. We're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's super real. I'm in it. But what do I do? And I think what you've also shared with us today is like the awareness of it and then also the seeking of peace in it. Right? There's only so much that we can do in a day. And I say this to you directly, which is, you know, you definitely have to take time to walk on that treadmill and not just sprint on it. Because in our work, here's some more data for you. The average lifespan of the activist in activism is seven years. You know, you talk about your hero earlier today. Well, he died in 88. That's a, that's a 44-year life. We want a lot more for you. We want a lot more for all of us. And so this is, this is definitely a fucking marathon. <laughs> but that wasn't on his own will, right? Like, and that's the, that's the thing that also... I think we need to center, Mark, because so much of of these heroes, right? When it when it comes down to to Sankara, to Lumumba, to Biko, to right to Cabral, right? Like um, to these these thinkers that have shaped and pushed, right? Like the vast majority of them, Berta Caceres, Chico Mendes, you know, their lives were ended, right? Because they were doing something truly revolutionary. And let's be honest, what is revolutionary and what isn't because like we live in this nft culture this bitcoin culture and all of this like mm -hmm. culture of people throwing around revolutionary tech revolutionary all these things you know we deal with people <laughs> getting killed 
for defending land and seed all the time. Who's getting killed for mining a Bitcoin, right? Like, 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 let's be right. honest with like what truly is revolutionary and how innate, right? And natural land defense is and how much of a threat in that is to the society. Land defenders are, is, you know, are killed all over the world. Like, you know what the most dangerous occupation is, right? Land defenders and the journalists that defend them, right? Like all over the yep. world, right? Period. This is real for a reason because our resource, our wealth, everything comes down to that, right? Right? Like, and and this is it. And now, and it's seed too, man. It's water. It's these resources. Like we can't forget how naturally connected we are to this environment and what that spiritual connection is. And for those that hold that sacred and true, what is their fate? Not by choice, but by the world around them, what is driven to them, right? This is real. 100% it is. And thank you for bringing it back. If you are listening in Canada, you know we are very well aware of the current and consistent fight for land back and also for the saving of old growth forests. And that's one of a fucking million things that we can discuss where people are literally putting their lives at risk consistently and abandoning the life that they know, the life that they know in defense in a true revolutionary act to stand up for something that will probably not directly impact their current life force. They're standing up for future generation. They're standing up for what's just and what's right. And they might get a blip on a social media account that someone might catch and repost one or two times and yet the pervasive culture is still showing me what the kardashians are doing and pushing it to me so as we unpack the social parts why these platforms and why i think our voices matter so much is that those light bulbs come on for people man and once they're on they don't go off unless we choke them down or we step away. And when I say that burnout cycle of seven years, some people who do front lines work just can't do it anymore. The PTSD gets too deep, too strong. Their own mental health has eroded so badly. All of their relationships have shattered that they have to step away into maybe a more docile role in this. And that's because when the light bulb comes on, it's all we can think about. Yeah. It becomes the dominant pervasive thought in our head is like, how doesn't everybody understand this? You know, when we start to pull apart poverty and it being an act of violence and a completely unnecessary one, it directly interlaces into you saying we produce for 11 billion and 70% of the 1.7 that are starving, you know, at a swipe are the ones making the fucking food. Like that should be enough <laughs> for you to want to burn it all down. And when people don't react to that, they're just like, okay. Yeah, that's that's pretty fucked up. It's it's in it's infuriating and also you understand because that's one of 50 inputs that they took today of injustice in a different sector. And so how do we work through the overwhelm into action is the consistent thought. And I think story has very much been at the center of what a growing culture does and shares in bite-sized pieces. So what I'd love to hear from you now Growing culture has been going for a while. What are some successes that you can share with us that you're particularly proud of and that keep you going? Oof. When you're working in narrative change, I think the successes have to be seen in a different way. And I think this is like the challenge right here where in, in the way that we've built out the nonprofit model, there's so many direct flaws, right? Like, first mm. of all, you're being funded by the very perpetuators of a system, right? Like it's like it's like it's like asking arsonists to put out a fire, right? Like um, mm -hmm. or like asking billionaires to solve poverty and hunger, right? Um, that's the problem, right? Like second of all is like the theory of change model, brother. Like that came from the military. This is mm -hmm. like military thinking to being pushed on groups that are pretty anti-military to be quite honest, like in the framework of like nonprofit industry. Right. Um, and, and I think it's really important to like conceptualize when we look at metrics, like, can we see soil carbon built? Can we see trees planted, but where are the metrics for like the amount of agency restored in a community, the amount of autonomy and sovereignty mm. individuals reclaim in their worlds? Like, and what are we fucking working towards? Right. Like, and how does like this, looking for these solutions challenge us. So like where we see is like 
to me, it's about, you know, the college student that that changes their thesis from, you know, nutrition into corporate consolidation and power and starts to to heal back and imagine fundamental different ways of restoring agency in a food system, right? Um, it's about uh, pushing for individuals to reframe language from food sovereignty from food security to food sovereignty. Why? Because you can be food secure in a prison. That's what my brother Raj Patel says, mm-hmm. right? It's not about being fed. It's about do I have choice over what I'm eating? Do I have agency in the marketplace? And you know this better than anybody, Mark, right? Like it's about that business leader saying, you know what? Organic and regenerative isn't enough. I need to build and create worker-owned shares or, or transition my model into a worker-owned cooperative. Right. Like it's it's about seeding that thought in every individual mind, because the potential of all of you for everyone listening to this podcast is far greater than the potential of you or I, Mark. Right. Like and when what we're trying to do is to seed consciousness and get that thought out, it's the journalist that now doesn't start that article by saying, to feed a growing population in 2050, we have to increase food production. So now let's talk about this community garden or this food program that then is now framed under the yield when we're already producing enough food for 2050 predictions, right? And when you're talking about yield and using this dogmatic approach, you're actually propping up industrial agriculture, even when you're talking about community-led initiatives, right? They've already won, right? Like So it's about a journalist being enough aware to recognize that dynamic and start doing true journalism, right? It's about the educator bringing in Freire, Fanon, right? Like um, into the classroom and start recognizing legacies of colonization. And that liberation only comes from the humanization of all people, oppressor and oppressed, right? Um, And like, I really wanted to start this segment at this quote that I wanted to share with you because you've been sharing all these quotes today. So I like, like, I wanted to share this quote because use this word violence. And like, to me, this is like one of the most incredible words, right? Like it's such a powerful word that, that, that we need to unpack and to explore and, 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 and to embrace. And because we have such a a visceral reaction to violence. Right. And, and so if you'd permit me to like, you know, uh, to give them this quote, Violence is initiated by those who oppress, who exploit, who fail others as persons, not by those who are oppressed, exploited, and unrecognized. It is not the unloved who initiate disaffection, but those who cannot love because they love only themselves. It is not the helpless subject to terror who initiate terror, but the violent who with their power create the concrete situation which begets the quote-unquote rejects of life. It is not the tyrannized who initiate despotism, but those who despise. It is not those whose humanity is denied them who negate humankind, but those who denied that humanity. Forces used not by those who have become weak under the preponderance of the strong, but by the strong who have emasculated them. For the oppressors, however, it is always the oppressed who are disaffected, who are violent, barbaric, wicked, or ferocious when they react to the violence of the oppressors. And that's Brother Paolo Freire. And I think it's really important when we're looking at it, you talked about the land defenders in Canada, right? Well, let me talk about the land defenders in Philippines because every four days a farmer is murdered by the government there, right? Like, like these people, no matter where they are, are labeled as terrorists, as violent, as barbaric, right? People standing up to these oppressive systems, right? And so to me, success looks like seeding that shift in consciousness and change in millions, if not billions of minds, because collectively we can do something different because the world's most renewable resource is collaboration. Mm. That right there is a mic drop, my friend. There's always an understanding of when we come to a natural close of a chapter and this conversation between you and I finishes on collaboration. It finishes on understanding of the vilification of others while perpetuating the exact thing we accuse them of. It's it's the simple way to keep people oppressed. I am keeping you safe from the violent by perpetuating violence. That's why we 
want to defund a lot of systems because they actually aren't required. They are simply there to continue to perpetuate the systems we fight against. What an absolute pleasure to start my week hanging out with you. <laughs> Man, you know, I knew, I knew when we pulled up in the street in New York, I knew. I was like, all right, this is going to be a fucking problem and also <laughs> uh, a lifelong camaraderie uh, that I am really excited to continue with you, man. And uh, sending all the love in the world. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. I've got tons to unpack. If you're listening, I'm sure you do too. I was literally taking notes. There's probably the fourth wall hearing me tap on the keyboard a little bit because there's some things that I'm going to dig into directly today, man. I appreciate the way you show up in the world and continue to fight. I appreciate the way that you earnestly share your own struggle and that you keep pushing through. Leadership in this era is not simple, particularly for those who are aware, but I think you're doing a fucking great job. So thank you. Send in love and can't wait to have you back. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you for this opportunity. Yeah, man. So folks, you already know, tap into a growing culture. You've been on better. We'll be back next week. Stay safe out there.